All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What's your goal in following Jesus? What do you see for yourself? What do you hope for? Where do you see getting to because you followed him? Today we are looking at a very personal letter from a great teacher in the Christian church, the Apostle Paul, writing to a young man whom he considers to be his spiritual son. Good fathers want the best for their kids. Paul wants the best for Timothy. And in writing to him about that, we get a glimpse as to what the best that God our Father wants for all of us. In these verses, Paul refers to that as complete, competent for every good work. In other sections of his two letters to Timothy, Paul refers to that with a particular word of emphasis often repeated, godliness. If someone was to say to you, she's a godly woman, or he's a godly man, I don't know what picture comes to your mind, but there will likely be this positive picture of a person who emulates what you envision it, it should be like to really follow Jesus. A while back, our leadership team uh, we fleshed out what a fully devoted follower of Jesus would look like, and we painted a picture of a disciple having reached his or her full potential in Christ. None of us are fully there, but at least this is a clear goal of what we should want to be and lead others towards, a picture of godliness. On one page, we, we made it simple, using our body to demonstrate our whole being given to God, the head, thinking God's truth about him, myself and others, the heart, loving God, loving others, the mouth, praising God, telling others about Jesus, speaking words of encouragement. The hands, generously serving others with time and resources. The body, being filled with the Holy Spirit. The knees, submitted everything to the Lordship of Christ. And the feet, following the example of Jesus, stepping towards others to share God's news with them. On the back page, we outline the headline, head, headings with more detail. For example, with the head, we talked about having a, a biblical worldview, a broad comprehension of the Word of God, a growing understanding of who God is, a growing understanding of your identity in Christ, an ability to interpret Scripture contextually, understanding the gospel and being transformed by the gospel in all areas of life, and the ability to share truths with others in a contextually relevant way. Godliness. Now, you may or may not think it is obtainable for you, but you respect that someone else is well on their way to that. Now, I don't know you all. I don't know who's watching, and, but I'm convinced of this. Godliness is the kind of person that is to be pictured of you. As Paul wanted godliness for Timothy, God wants this best for you and, and for all of us. Instead of voicing excuses in your head, rather ask, why not me? We may have different callings, like we have different stations in life and things we are supposed to do, but in who we are to become, God has the same goal for all of us, to be like Jesus, complete, mature, equipped for every good work. This is godliness. This is the best version of yourself. And I hope in reading these verses, it is quite obvious that there is a way to get there, and without going that way, you certainly will not. It has everything to do with the scriptures. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So let's unpack this. The scriptures are profitable. When you read Paul's letters to Timothy, you can't help but see how positive he viewed the scriptures. Is that how you see them? They make you wise unto salvation. They, they help you to make good decisions that bring about life in the present, but also extend into eternity. They also help you to, to get free when you may feel entrapped and in bondage. As Jesus said, the truth shall set you free. David parallels the, the high value of God's word in the Old Testament. He talks about God's law to the people. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Better than money and food, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. You may wonder how David could say this of the Old Testament law. And how Paul says all scripture is profitable. Has he read Leviticus? We have this tendency to make scripture a kind of a vending machine. I want an inspiration for the day, so I have my favorite profitable verse of the fridge magnet variety to do that. I have problem X. I want to be able to turn to scripture to solve problem X. The law and Leviticus are not likely to help me there. But scripture was meant to do far more for you than spoon feed inspiration or solve your problem. Its primary purpose is first of all, to reveal God. If you want to know God, read, read it all. All scripture is profitable. 40% or more of the Old Testament is narrative. We found out what God is like through the stories about him. As he engages with humanity, we see the truth of who he is. His mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his love and faithfulness his power and his holiness and justice. The God of the Old Testament is not different than the God of the New. The Old Testament scriptures were profitable for revelation of God, and Jesus graciously makes the revelation more fully clear. So that what we have is a way of thinking and a way of life, teaching, doctrine, with the expectation that it will be lived out. Just like the founder of their faith, Jesus, one who both did and taught, New Testament Christians would, would not have this concept of intellectual knowledge that was not also experiential. Paul says to Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Did you see that? My teaching, my conduct, Paul says. Paul's teaching and conduct were so consistent that Timothy could follow. And Timothy was to live and lead the same way. Every once in a while, there are these ways of criticism against the pursuit of biblical knowledge. And sometimes that criticism is justified. We fall more in love with our knowledge of the Bible than the person that the Bible is to lead us to. That's an error. But it, it is equally an error to abandon the pursuit of biblical knowledge altogether rather than to make sure it is properly oriented. Paul believed a, a proper knowledge of God's word was crucial. He emphasized that the leaders in the church ordained as elders were apt or able to teach. It was a criterion for leadership. 
We don't want to be led by opinion polls or the cultural current of the day, but by the foundation of the scriptures. See, what we think greatly shapes the way we live. What we think about God matters. What we think about ourselves matters. What we think about the world around us matters. And all of our perspective is to be shaped by the inspired word of God whose truth will lead to life for ourselves and for those we pass it on to. And untruths and lies lead to death. There's this emotional story in Acts chapter 20 where the Apostle Paul, in saying goodbye to the church leaders of Ephesus in Turkey, they all know this is likely the last time they will ever see each other again. Think of some of the goodbyes you may have seen on the news as fathers and sons say goodbye to family, as women and children move to escape the war zone of Ukraine while the men stay to fight, not knowing if they will ever see each other again. Paul is dangerously. This word of God he carries and teaches often puts him in harm's way. He says to the Ephesian elders, and now behold, I know that none of you among you whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Of all the things Paul could have reflected upon, he zeroes in on the fact that he had taught the Ephesians church the ways of God, all of it. And not all of it is easy to receive, but he did not shrink back. In saying goodbye, he has this urgent advice. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. One of the perpetual dangers to the church is harmful teaching that comes from within. It, it comes in the name of Christ, but it is off. It's twisted. It has a form of truth, but is a distortion of that truth. And this is why we, we need to read and study the whole counsel of God and to do so in community, especially with those in whom we can see the fruit that scripture has in their lives. With our technology, it's just so easy to be drawn to eloquent speakers from anywhere in the world, to, to feast on podcasts individually outside of community, and then to begin to, to believe teaching that is labeled Christian, but it's distorted. It's off from the truth, and it leads us astray. You may not be aware of this, but one of the things we do here at Central Heights in preparation for our weekend teaching is that whoever is speaking meets with a collaborative group a week and a half in advance to discuss their message. And we talk about the scriptural text and what it means, the best way to explain it and to apply it. It truly is iron sharpening iron. Sometimes we have very different opinions and I mean, there's no virtual blood on the Zoom screen, but it does keep our interpretations truer to the text of what has been written because we know it is profitable for teaching. Paul goes on, all scripture is profitable for reproof or rebuke. All scripture is profitable for correction. You've probably seldom put rebuke, correction, in the same box with other things that are good for you. Well, I'm so glad you showed me where I was wrong. When our girls were younger, uh, a woman that I was on our community center board with told me that her husband wanted to teach my girls tennis lessons. He was an instructor, we played tennis, and I thought, absolutely, and we made it happen. 
That first lesson is forever etched in my mind. As he began to teach them some of the fundamentals of tennis, my girls would look over at me with this questioning look. Now, it seems I had instructed the girls wrongly in so many areas. That afternoon was a rebuke to me, a correction for them, but it did lead to so much better tennis for all of us going forward, and I'm grateful for that today. If I asked you for a show of hands, who will admit they're not perfect? Well, all of us would gladly raise our hands, right? Why is it then when someone actually points out an area of imperfection, we get hostile over it? It's been said, we don't just read the Bible, the Bible reads us. And one of the benefits of scripture is that these inspired words of God and wanting to take us to that beautiful goal of godliness points out to us where we are off, where we need to wake up and, and where we need to adjust our way. We've all been immersed in a culture that has schooled us wrongly and all of us will need reproof and correction to get us to the place where we think and act right again. What am I missing out on if I refuse to welcome God's words when they bring me up short? Am I too prideful to receive their correction? Do I even have a theological framework that allows for this? A God who corrects, even rebukes. Think about this. If you were to name the most known, memorized, repeated verse in the Bible, what would that be? John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It sounds so good. They're life-giving words. Did you know these words were spoken right in the context of a rebuke? Let me take you back to John chapter 3. This chapter is part of our 21 days of encountering God in the scripture, so you may have caught this. As we read in context, it begins this way. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus is a big man in the world of religious Israel. He comes to Jesus at night and flatters him. Jesus isn't moved by Nicodemus' words, though, and he moves the conversation to a more important issue, the kingdom of God and Nicodemus' need for it. Jesus tells him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a, a time into his mother's womb and be born? So Jesus expounds to Nicodemus on the necessity of a second birth, a new identity in God. And when, when Nicodemus says to him then, how can these things be? Jesus says this, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Can you feel how the words of Jesus would have landed to Nicodemus? They're scathing, they are a rebuke. But it appears that Nicodemus allowed Jesus' words to bring him into the light. It is hinted at in John's Gospel, in chapter seven, against the hostility of his fellow Pharisees, Nicodemus sticks up for Jesus to have a fair hearing. In chapter 19, Nicodemus is there with a disciple of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, bringing an abundance of spices to take care of the now lifeless body of Jesus on the night of his crucifixion. What am I missing out on if I refuse to welcome God's words and they, when they bring me up short? Am I too prideful to receive their correction? 
There's a lot at stake here with the words in this book. It describes a way to God. It describes it as the only way. Salvation in Jesus and Jesus alone. And that can be offensive. Hey, if you've grown up in a different faith, this is an affront to what you have believed. God's word comes to correct and offer you its way, its person, Jesus Christ. And I know it is so hard to accept that if, for example, you are a Muslim or a Buddhist or, or Sikh because it means acknowledging what's been handed down to you was wrong. There will be relational pain. Nicodemus had to experience a revolution in his belief, and so do we all, only to find Jesus to be the prize we've always been looking for, a God who loves us so much that he gave his life for us, for God so loved the world. Scripture also has a sexual ethic. It has the audacity to propose that the God who made us has a better understanding of how we should steward our bodies for our personal good and for the good of society. So it sets a limit on all sex, that this beautiful, beautiful, physically and emotionally bonding experience would be the exclusive experience of a man and woman who have committed to one another in marriage. If I'm engaging in any other practice and, and I read this book and I run up against its correction, what is my response? We'll all have to ditch the don't tell me how to live for a submission to the inspired, life-giving words of God that take you to the joy of a life full of potential in Him. Paul had told the Ephesian elders to pay careful attention to themselves. You know, personally, I shudder to think where I would be without God's word. I am so quick to get offline, tempted to live for myself, to be influenced towards indulgence. How I need God's word and the help of the Holy Spirit to embrace God's way that leads to life. God's word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and this, for training in righteousness. God's word isn't just about knowing things. It's not just about being told where you might be off. It's also about making you into someone. Ephesians 4 uses the same word to talk about parents and raising their kids. God's word will guide and develop us from one level of maturity to another as we learn about God, as we learn about who we are, as it shapes our thinking and compels our actions, what we say no to, what we say yes to. We are in training. We are growing up into that full potential known as godliness. This is the urgent picture that Paul has for Timothy and for the church, and by extension for all of us. It's urgent because when Paul writes this, it is towards the end of his life and ministry. He is leaving to Timothy leadership responsibilities and what he hopes for Timothy, he hopes will be multiplied in others. He hopes for us. You have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now, Timothy, teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Don't you wanna be one of those? one who knows the truth of God's word and can pass it on. Jen Wilkin has written a book about God's word that I buy and I give to others. She says, sound Bible study is rooted in celebration of delayed gratification. Gaining Bible literacy requires allowing our study to have a cumulative effect across weeks, months, years, so that the interrelation of one part of scripture to another reveals itself slowly and gracefully. When we started this series, Rhythms That Leads to Life, we talked about how God works, we work, God works. 
As we take steps to walk into right ways with him, he is there to help us. His spirit empowers us to carry it through. It's true for prayer. It's true for encountering God in the scriptures. He is not going to make you open your Bible. He's not going to force you to read it rightly, asking, what does it say? What does it mean? What is my response? How will I submit myself to it? He's not going to force you to, to study it, memorize it, live it, and pass it on. And as a church, we want to come alongside you. We have provided resources on our website. If you have questions, communicate with us. We'd love to talk with you and to help. But it will take some doing on your part. It begins with taking the time, making the space, starting, and then continuing, and then continuing, and then continuing. In his word, God will meet you there. It will be profitable. And with God's help, we'll all marvel at whom we have become.